Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. This week's episode begins the second in our continuing series related to the Major Dade Memorial March Virtual Challenge. This exercise journey takes you from the Bayside site of Old Fort Brook in Tampa, past Fort Foster in Hillsborough County, and through the Dade Battlefield Historic State Park in Bushnell to the reconstructed Fort King in Ocala. Registration is now open for entrance. Just visit SeminoleWars.us for details. We launched the mission officially December 22nd. While you're performing your daily aerobic routines, why not listen to some of our past episodes while you're at it? This episode marks number 30, so you have plenty to listen to. And if you're just joining this virtual march and are unfamiliar with the Seminole Wars, this is an excellent opportunity to hone your knowledge by using these podcasts as a primer while you walk or run or tiptoe or march or roller skate or you get the idea. Before we begin, however, I stress something key. One of the questions last week from Steve Rink, president of the Seminole Wars Foundation, referred to whether this route was handicap friendly. I somewhat lightly remarked that since this is a virtual course, not one that goes over the actual terrain of the old Fort King military road, there are no obstacles in one's path for someone with physical challenges. I clarify that now. Remember, this is not a race. Instead, this is an individual and personal challenge, one to better your body and your mind. Those registered will complete a 103-mile journey in the best way they are able. The virtual challenge presents tangible benefits just from getting outside and enjoying fresh air, or from staying inside but getting off the couch and onto a treadmill. To that end, if your method for mobility is a motorized scooter, use it. Drive it around the neighborhood for the requisite number of miles until you total 103 over however many days it takes in the three months after we launch. Doing so will benefit one's mental well-being as much as your physical well-being from such an exercise regimen. Just stick with it the full distance and you will reap all the benefits of completing such a great challenge. Now, on to this episode. On November 30th, 1988, Jerry C. Morris spotted the innocuously titled newspaper notice by chance in the Tampa Tribune Times. Historian to lead excursion. That historian was the late Frank Laumer, and he was recruiting his legion of soldier reenactors to recreate the march of Major Francis L. Dade's ill-fated column along the Fort King Military Road from Tampa to Bushnell. The hike was scheduled for December 27th to December 31st, 1988. Some of the hikers would be authentically dressed in period 1835 soldier uniforms, all the way to their muskets. A number of women had signed up for the hike as part of the support team, riding in a motorhome that would be carrying camping gear and necessities for the hikers. The entry fee for the hike was $10 for Dade Battlefield Society members and $15 for non-members, The walk was nearly canceled because of insurance expenses, but the State Department of Natural Resources came to the rescue, putting hikers on insurance as volunteers. They began their hike promptly at 7 a.m. and planned to stop at the same points Dade and his men had camped. By 7 a.m. on Saturday, they would be leaving Dade's last stop before heading off to his rendezvous with destiny. 
The hikers were then scheduled to join a reenactment of the battle between Dade's men and the Seminole Indians. The hikers themselves were promised a very different ending than the one experienced by Major Dade and his men. Jerry, a former trucker and ex-paratrooper, gave it a moment's consideration and shared the article with his wife, Linda, before stating, I think I want to do this. No longer as fit and trim as he was in the late 1950s, back in his army days, nevertheless, 50-year-old Jerry Morris signed up. The ever-personable Jerry attended a preparatory meeting with the Dade Battlefield Society and quickly made friends with living historians who helped outfit him in the proper period soldier's attire. A month later, in late December 1988, Jerry joined a group of not especially fit middle-aged men to pace the route of Major Dade's ill-fated march of 1835. When the trek began, Frank Lommer's conscripts did not exactly number the size of a Roman legion, or even a Roman century for that matter, and it got fewer in number from there. Soon enough, the hard physical marching and Florida heat, even in December, decimated its ranks hour by hour and day by day, until by the time they reached Dade Battlefield Historic State Park, roughly a baker's dozen of hardy troopers remained. Among them was the unlikely Jerry Morris the marcher who signed up on a whim and who admitted that he really intended to just walk one day's worth, 12 to 15 miles, merely for the experience. But one foot in front of the other to one hour after another and one day after another, until five days later, he found himself, to his complete surprise, finishing the 60-mile or so trek. Now, I said unlikely, Jerry Morris, but for anyone who knows him, the term unlikely is the furthest description of him. Dogged, tenacious, determined, stubborn. All of these are better modifiers. In this episode, listeners will learn why. Jerry joins us to tell his story of how a scrawny teenager standing five foot nine and 119 pounds soaking wet proved the army doubters wrong about his capabilities and physical composition to complete airborne training and become an elite paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division. That same drive, determination, and stick-to-itiveness served him well 32 years afterward when he decided spontaneously to become a soldier volunteer again, enlisting in the ranks of the historical enthusiast marchers of Lommer's Legion. Finishing with his bedraggled compatriots, Jerry has remained staunchly aligned with Lommer's Legion. In the more than 32 years since, he's never departed their ranks. In fact, he has consistently proven himself to be an indispensable voice, mover, and shaker in the Seminole Wars commemoration community. Excited by this opportunity afforded with the virtual challenge, the now 82-year-old Jerry is taking his motor scooter around his neighborhood in training for this undertaking to complete Dade's mission to Fort King. He has replaced his old battery, added a new pillow cushion to his seat, and hand-washed his sky-blue 1830s artillery soldier's uniform. Jerry Morris, welcome to the virtual challenge, and welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Thank you, Patrick. Jerry, you were one of a number of middle-aged men who decided to take off from your jobs and with very little physical preparation, set out from Tampa to recreate the march of Major Dade's ill-fated column that was ambushed and perished at Bushnell. How in the world did you ever decide to do such a thing? State Battlefield Society put an ad in the paper, Tampa Tribune at that time, that they were gonna do a recreation of the march that Major Dade made in 1835 from Tampa to Bushnell. And uh, 
I read that little article. The only thing I know about the Fort King Road or anything about the day battle at that time was seeing the sign on Interstate 75. I passed it many a times. I was a truck driver, and I ran regularly by it. <laughs> I always kind of liked history, so I said, I think I'll just go up and talk to them. They're going to have a meeting, and I conned another guy that I worked with to go with me. And we went up to the meeting. They was going to accept volunteers. And I signed up to do it, not realizing how hard it was going to be. <laughs> uh, Dan Marshall at that time worked at Fort Foster at the Hillsborough River State Park. And he offered to loan me a uniform and a musket and everything that I needed to look like a soldier marching up the road. And about two weeks, we were ready to go. We started where they took their first nights. They didn't do the Tampa part down through the downtown Tampa. They started where they spent their first night in this little fish camp on Harney Road near uh, Sly Avenue. And that's where we started from at about 7 o'clock on a Monday morning, I guess it was. I didn't know anybody I was walking with or anybody at all except myself. And I conned my son into going with me. And what the plan was that I was going to do the first day walk and my son was gonna do the rest of it. And my son was about 18 at that time. We made it up to the Hillsborough River State Park to spend the night. And my son told me, he said, I ain't doing the rest of this. He said, this don't make any sense to me. So the first thing that left smoking, he wrote it home. <laughs> but I decided that I was feeling good enough that I'd try one more day of it. So I stayed, and each day it seemed to get a little easier for me. And I managed to make the, the march all the way to the battlefield. The most amazing things happened on that march that just I couldn't explain. And another guy that had never done it, didn't know anything more about it than me. We were stopped to take a rest and I was feeling kind of, the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. I just felt the presence of these people that, that they must have stopped here. And, and he looked at me and he, he said, are you feeling it too? And I said, yeah. <laughs> And that was Dave Leonard, was his name, and me and him became very good friends on the way. You're a tough guy. You jumped out of perfectly good airplanes as a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division. You got to do a lot of running and you got to do a lot of marching. So when you were going to recreate Dade's march, you shouldn't have had that much apprehension because you're a tough guy already. I was in my younger years. I'm talking about I done got, you know, up a little bit in age and, uh, and have back surgery. They've done some stuff to my back and I was able to walk and I, before that I couldn't even hardly sit up but it was some many years of riding in a truck and banging my muscles around in my back and stuff and I had a, one of the ligaments in my back and my spine had to be took out. Was this before or after you did the march? Oh, this was a long time before I did the march. So I had to quit truck driving, and I was working in the plant in Tampa then for the same company I drove truck for. They gave me a job that I could do because I'd been done real good driving for them, so. You must have felt some affinity as an infantry soldier with the plight of, I know that with Dade they were mostly artillerymen. I was an 82nd Airborne Field Artillery. So you felt an affinity with Dade's troops having to march. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, I know what I had to do to get through jump school. When I went into the 82nd Airborne, I was five foot nine, weighed 119 pounds. I didn't look like a paratrooper, and they didn't want to let me in there, but I had volunteered for it, so they had to let me have the training. And after taking the standard eight weeks of basic training, then I went to Fort Bragg to take my paratrooper training, and they didn't want me there. 
they wanted these big, strong, muscle-looking people that looked like paratroopers. But I wanted to do it. They kept on trying to get me to quit. And after four weeks of pre-airborne training, they called me in the office and told me they didn't think I was going to be able to make this. And I said, well, I want to try it anyway. I said, are you going to make me quit? And he said, no, no, we ain't going to make you quit. And I said, well, I'm going to do it. So I went to airborne training. You have to take a physical test before you get into it. And I couldn't pass the test to get into it. One reason I couldn't pass the test was they didn't want me to. <laughs> and you only had to do like four chin-ups, and they'd put you on the bar, and you swing free. And then they couldn't start till they tell you to start. So they let me hang there about three or four minutes, and then tell me to begin. <laughs> and I, I'd been hung so long I couldn't do them, you know. But then I couldn't do the squat jumps that you had to do, and certain number 36 of them or something other. And I couldn't do it. So I done two weeks of that. And that's what they call pre-training. And I still couldn't pass it because I didn't look like what they wanted me to look like. They called me in again. Everybody else in my whole platoon had already passed and gone on to school. Me and a, one or two other guys, about all was left. And they put us in a special barracks. And we went back through three more weeks of that pre-airborne basic training, they called it. And it was an hour of calisthenics and an hour of running, an hour of calisthenics and an hour of running all day long, three weeks. And the first three weeks, I still couldn't do it. And they tried to get me to quit again. And I told them, I said, are y'all going to make me quit? And they said, no, we're not going to make you quit. I said, well, I guess I'll spend my whole three years in the Army right here. I went back, and the next time, after three weeks of it again, I was able to pass the test. They let me pass it. By that time, I had to have all new clothes. I had so many muscles that you couldn't. <laughs> I could do push-ups to just got tired of doing them. <laughs> and... We'd done our running every morning, like a 10-mile run around Fort Bragg. And if we didn't do it just right some mornings, the guys saw glad y'all enjoyed your trip around it. They're going to do it again. <laughs> they tried their best to make me quit. In my mind, I wasn't going to do that. I had done had so many 20,000 push-ups into it and so many miles of running, I wasn't going to give that up. And it was just, I don't know, something you put your mind to. You can do it about anything, but it might take you a while. By the time you finally got through the basic training for airborne to make your first jump, there wasn't anybody that didn't want to jump out of that pool. <laughs> Get the hell out. <laughs> the first jump was probably the easiest one I ever made. The second jump is the hardest <laughs> because you know what's going to happen. <laughs> I really, really was proud to get my wings. I really was. My dad got the blood wings as he was going to World War II. That's what everybody called that first pair of wings that you got was your blood wings. Put them on your chest and somebody smacked them and stuck them into your chest. <laughs> they outlawed doing that. I went downtown in Fayetteville and got it tattooed on my arm and it's still on there. You just barely can see it. It's been so long ago. That would have been in 1956, I guess it was. They went through that. It's still on there today, so I'm in on 81, be 82 next month. So it's been there a while. And then your son, the young whippersnapper, bails out after the first day. But you weren't a quitter. As we could see, you're not going to quit. I wasn't a quitter. If I had mind to start to do something, I'm going to do it. And uh, that's stick to it, it's, it's, I guess is what my grandfather called it. I was worried about if I could make the trip or not. It was because of my back. Yeah, so despite the bad back and the problems with it, you decided you're going to do this march and you weren't going to quit. The march would have to quit you. Kind of, yeah. yeah. It was sort of amazing to me that these guys had done this. 
and I didn't know anything about it at all other than what I learned on the march. I marched with Ray Jerome. Have you heard of him? Ray Jerome was in charge of all the reenactors for a long time at Dave Battlefield. And Ray Jerome had connections with the movies, and a lot of the movies that you see that's made the Civil War, and at this time, if you look under the under property master, it says Dr. Ray Jerome on it. And he's in the credits on the movie. And he was doing the march. I talked with him quite a bit as we was walking up the first day, and he told me several things about it and stuff. And he was quite taken by him that he was out there doing this. Here's a guy that has plenty of education that's doing this, so this must be worth something. <laughs> and we made it that first day, which would have been their second day's march. And they made it as far as Fort Foster. Spent the night there, and they had killed a hig on the fort there at around the park somewhere and they made a big stew out of that pig. Went back several times that night for some more of that stew that was hanging on a pot outside. Each night while we'd sit around the campfire and Frank Lomer would tell a story or two and it'd be about all the entertainment we'd have and they go sleeping. The next morning my son got up and left. There was a reporter that was walking with us. It was a little bit overweight like I was. <clears throat> and he told me, he said, are you going on during I said, yeah, I'm going to try it another day. And he gave me some powder for my legs. He said, you probably don't need this. <laughs> he said, I quit. The next day, we walked as far as Dave City. That night, we were sitting around the campfire, and Frank told his uh, story about the guy that didn't get killed in the battle, Ransom Clark. And that just made me that much more want to do it. I don't know, just each day, I, I thought, well, I'll try to make the day. And I finally got to where I am. I'm going to make this. <laughs> It was quite a thing to do it, it really was. <clears throat> and I was really proud when I got there. And I had asked before when they was having the meetings, the first meeting, I said, if we do all the work, are we going to get do it and be in the battle when they get here? And right away, the, the reenactor spoke up and said, no, no, that's going to qualify you for that. But I did get to get into the reenactment. I, we got there on Saturday morning. We had done, got to do the reenactment, not that evening, but Sunday I got to do the reenactment when they done the second one, they let me be in it. What did you learn from marching about the durability of the uniform and about what troops had to do carrying a knapsack and uh, and their gear and so forth? I didn't have a knapsack, but I did have the bag you carried to carry your groceries in and stuff like that. And I had the bayonet and stuff. And I had all, both the belts that make the cross across your body. But didn't anybody have a, a, a knapsack except one guy, Dave Leonard, and, but we had as close as they could get, most people did. And we looked like a group of soldiers. And I felt pretty proud of myself, so I decided just, I just kept on it. When we made it to the battlefield on that march, we got in there at the same time Major Dave would have got about 10 o'clock in the morning. The few that were left, we come marching in. And some other people joined us for the last day, but all the people that had been all the way would got to go in first. And then Frank made us a little speech. They asked him just questions about it and stuff. Ask him what did he learn most about from doing the walk. And the first thing he said, he said, well, we didn't walk on the highway, we walked on the shoulders of the road because it's softer and easier on your heels. And he said that the most disgusting thing was is all the trash that people throw on the side of the highway. And that kind of stopped me from doing that. <laughs> 
there was a lot of trash that people threw on the side of the highway. And it was the first thing that Frank said about when they got there, what was he remembered most about it. Completing a 60-mile march like this would have been enough for just about anybody, but not for Jerry Morris. What did you suggest once you were finished with this? Wanted us to do a march from Bushnell to Fort King. You know, like I told you about being in the prayer troopers, I wanted to finish it. <laughs> Since then, I never could get anybody to let's go do this. I thought maybe one time we might get the Seminoles to, I'm sure they used that same road. Osceola came down to the, the battlefield or close to there the night after he killed Wally Thompson, Indian agent. I thought maybe I'd get the Seminoles to maybe ride their horses and stuff down that road at least, but never could quite get in. I got several people interested in it and everybody went, yeah, that'd be a good thing, but nobody would ever do it. And I think it's still something that should be done. Would get some great publicity out of it especially since we've got Fort King there now. So out of nowhere, you went on this march, and then you got so inspired from it that you decided to become a regular soldier, reenactor, or living historian of the period. I first joined the society up there, the Dave Battlefield Society. Really got interested in it. It's just amazing that I had never heard anything about it. It was nothing taught in school, nothing about it on the sign on the side of the road. And... Uh, I thought I would sort of make it my business to make some more people aware of it. To be an authentic living history soldier from that era, you've actually researched how immigrants got off the boat in New York City and found themselves joining the U.S. Army and on their way to Florida. Tell us about one of those. I read a book, more pamphlet type thing, of a soldier that came to the United States that had been in the English Army. He came to New York, he didn't have any money, couldn't find a job, so he finally decided he'd join the Army. He went down and signed up, and he was dressed very well. And because he had been in the English Army, they took him right in. The guy that's doing the recruiting told him the best thing he could do is with the clothes that you have on, they're going to take from you, and they're just going to burn them. So he said, I suggest that you go down and find a used clothing store and sell the clothes that you have on and buy some real cheap stuff to wear out to have some money there. <laughs> And he did that. And in it, he, he talks about doing all of that. And, and he said he woke up the first morning and went to get breakfast. All he had was some bread. He had to have a hammer to bite it. <laughs> and the only condiment on the table was some balsic vinegar. <laughs> right then, he figured out he might not have got into a good thing. <laughs> they shipped him right on out to Florida then. And you feel this is such a neglected part of Florida history that you've read up on it, you've done the Dade's March, you've attired yourself in authentic regalia, and you've gone out into the public and into the schools. It's something that really people ought to know. And they don't teach it in the school anymore. Nothing about it. I'd go to schools and do these classes. The kids pay so close attention you wouldn't believe. Linda and I used to go up to Zephyr Hills High School. For some reason, they always put us in the cooking class. A classroom where they taught the girls cooking. That was the room we used. Sometimes it would be three or four classes, sometimes it'd be five or six, just how many kids they had. And one day that, that we were there, they brought this group of kids in, and we I started doing my class, and one guy started asking this simple little questions, just stopping me every sentence or so. And I finally told him, I said, look, said, I understand what you're trying to do. You want me to just shut up and y'all get out of here. I said, but I'm going to teach this class with or without you. And I don't want you asking any more questions. I'm going to do my class. Every one of them got just as quiet and started paying attention. And every one of them liked the class. And when they left, Gene McNary, the principal, came in and told me, said, Jerry, that's the worst people we have in the school right here. We have nobody been able to teach them anything except you. <laughs> that made me feel pretty good. 
but it was just asserting a little bit of authority over him, and there was nothing he could do it, and I'd done it in front of him. The other people, I guess, I kind of think it made him embarrassed him a little bit, but it was he was going to make sure I didn't get to do anything. So I never had to do that anymore. I, the, the best places that I go to teach my classes is usually at private schools where you can say what you want to. In state schools, you can't say some things. You can't do some things. And anymore, you, even now, you can't do it any of them. But from they got to where I couldn't bring my musket or my saber with me. I have a original 1837 saber, an artillery officer's sword that my brother bought for me from the out in Mississippi. And now my brother, my, my son, got it for me. It's got the date stamped. I don't say it could have been used here. It probably wasn't, but it could have been. And it just uh, a lot of things like that little girl stand out in my mind. And then that one class of the mean kids attending my line. And then the first class I did for a school was down in Sarasota. I went down there to teach one class, the class next door. The teacher asked me if I would stay and do another class. And I'd done two classes that day at the same school. I got a letter from the, from the school envelope came and uh, each one of them took a big white sheet of paper and drawed a picture of something about that they learned that day. And the teacher said she had gave them a test on what I talked about. They all made real good grades on it, so they understood what I told them. And that made me feel proud. I got one letter was from a kid. He said, I'm sorry I wasn't there Friday when you was here. He said, but I wished I had a bit. <laughs> and what were you teaching? What I just got to talking about, about the rations and, and my little display of stuff. Uh, and about the, the marching. And, and when you do it, when I've done the march and, and when I've looked up the food and when you know what you're talking about it's not hard to really teach it and I got all the stuff to show it and I do it in a way that I do it the same way every time so uh, it's pretty well in my mind. You were wearing the blue sky uniform? Oh yes, Steve Abel made me a uniform, made it identically hand-stitched, coat and a pair of pants. <laughs> Ross Lamoureux made me a shirt, one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. That guy could sew a seam and look like done with a sewing machine when it gets through with it. About every year or two, I'd have to get it to make me a new one and make the collar a little bit because it'd get fat. <laughs> he wouldn't charge me a penny. Never would. Still don't. If you ever need anything like that, that's, that's the person to go to is Ross Lemmer. He's the president of the Dave Battlefield Society now, this year. Did any students ever ask you whether you were a Yankee or a rebel? Most people assume that I'm a rebel when at first the kids do. They think that I'm a rebel because of the color of the uniform. But the first thing I do, I tell them I'm in the artillery. I explain about the yellow piping on my collar means that I'm in the artillery. And my buttons are, have an eagle on each one, and it means I'm in the artillery. If it was infantry, it would be white. And if I, my collar stripes would be white also. And they seem to like that. Did you tell them why the hat was so big? I talk about that a lot. <laughs> I introduced the hat as being the worst piece of uniform that the Army ever made. The hottest thing that you can wear. It's a made that was built so it would make you look taller and bigger than you were. And the Indians just understood it right underneath that hat was where your head was. And these pictures that the Indians draw of, of soldiers hiding behind palmettos with just their hats sticking up. <laughs> and didn't realize it. They could just lower their beat a little bit and shoot them right in the face. They changed the hat in 1843, I think. Yeah. And went to more like what a conventional cap looks like today. Was there a practical reason for the size yeah. of the cap? An 1833 Army foraging cap. 
and the band that goes around from your ears and down over the top of the brim and around to the side will expand out and you can make a bucket out of it and then go pick blackberries or hickory nuts and stuff like that in it or you can get water up get water up with it it was supposed to be very utilitarian but it was god it was hot and i learned one thing you don't do is when we do it in the march still got the same hat that i done the march in i bought it from dad marshall We'd stop for a rest and right beside a fence line and line, and I put my hat on a fence post. When I went well, ready to go, I pick it up, put it on my head. The fence post was for him, which meant my hat was for my head. <laughs> I never did that again. What has most impressed you about this period of U.S. Army history? It's the amazement of what these guys with so little training did to have to wear that wool uniform. In the heat of the day, I still haven't do fights with it, battles with it on. It's getting not much sleep, and and this I have tremendous respect for the soldiers from back then. And the other thing is that how much you're working until you die. Yeah, and it's a shame we can't do that today. I've done some research on Major Date's wife. She put in for retirement pension from him after he got killed, and she had to go to all places from Pensacola to Montgomery, Alabama. And she had to have a letter showing who she was that had to be signed by three people of importance. And she had to swear that it was all true. Now, we don't think about that today. You do anything today. But if you went more than 10 or 15 miles from where you live in, nobody knows who you was. You can say he's anybody. What she had to do to get a pension of $7 a month wasn't much. <laughs> I think it was seven, might have been 15, but one of the two, I don't know been a long time ago. Now you pull out your social security card or, or your driver's license and anybody accepts that. Swearing back then to something meant something. It don't mean nothing anymore. Your research on Major Dade's wife and her attempt to get a pension from the Army for her husband's service eventually came in handy. State Battlefield Society got a letter from a guy who does marble work in Pensacola that said that somebody had broken the headstone of Major Dade's wife. And he said he would fix it for a certain amount of money and uh, the State Battlefield Society told him to do it, they would pay for it. And I convinced him to let me and another guy to go out there and pay him with giving the check and maybe we'd get some publicity out of our $300 that he charged us. <laughs> and I did that. They put it in the paper that I was going to do a little speech at the grave that morning. And then about 30 people showed up. And I gave her the talk about who she was, why she was buried there, and some of the census of the tech at that time where she lived at. And the Historical Society of Pensacola woman head of it got up and spoke after me and told them that thought it was a shame that somebody from Bushnell had to come there and take care of their cemetery. <laughs> uh, Jerry, you're also a craftsman. You've handmade replicas of tables, stools, and benches from the era. Is that part of your display or your exhibits? Everything I have is historically correct. I have two rope beds that I made for me and Linda to sleep on in the tent. And made them, I even made the ropes that go in the beds. I got a little shop I make things in, and I made all that stuff. And I find it in book, and I can tell from the picture what it is, and I can usually get some dimensions from them by pretending I want to buy it. <laughs> and I got some t tables that fold up as four legs, and each one fold individually. That was from that time. And my tent also have a stand that holds a pan for water and, and a mirror for shaving, you know, like they used to have years ago. Most of them had a bowl in it, and you have a shaving tools. What I have is an officer's tent, 
and he would had a place to shave. It was hard to get a brush from that period to find the grandma and uh, have a straight razor. Frank Romer's wife ran an antique store and she had a milking pan that she gave me instead of the bowl. I didn't figure a bowl would have lasted long, folded up and put in a wagon every day and I bumped over the thing. And the little pan was just exactly the right size and I used that as the bowl. And I talk about the milking pan and I have some documents where George Washington ordered milking pans from England at that time when George Washington then came here. A cow didn't give up about maybe two or three cups of milk a day. You had to have a lot of cows to have extra milk. We have bred the cows now that, you know, they give five, six, seven gallons of milk, of milking, you know. And back then they gave two or three cups full a day. They had pans instead of buckets. <laughs> I couldn't understand it being a milking pan. I remember my grandmother milking her cow. She had a big old bucket she filled up every morning and every night with it. Our younger listeners may not know what a rope bed is. What is a rope bed? They didn't invent the springs for mattresses and things until 1848, 49, and that period of time. Before then, most beds were made with rope. And it's just that instead of having a board there to lay a mattress on, they ran about every foot across between two boards. There's a rope ran through a hole to the other side and then up a foot and then back through it, back through it, all up and down. Then they done the same thing from the foot to the head, and it was squares. And then you, you had a tool they called a key, and you stick that in where the, the rope sticks out on each side, and you turn the key and you tighten them up. And that's where the saying, keep tight, don't let the bed bugs bite. That's where the expression came from, the sleeping tight. And where did the bed bugs come from? I don't know where they come from, but they get them if you, you didn't what you clean. <laughs> I presume that, let's say you had a mattress full of hay or something, it'd probably be riddled. It was stuffed with different things according to where you lived. In Florida here, they used the Spanish moss. Now, there's a lot of chiggers and stuff in Spanish moss. So to kill all those chiggers, you pick the moss that you're going to use and you boil it until it, you kill them. And then you hang it on a fence someplace and you let it dry and it turns black. And then you stuff it with that. And it's pretty soft. And it makes a good sleeping bed. In some places, they, you know, you might get enough feathers to, to stuff it with. Some places, I have actually slept on one that was stuffed with corn shucks. Made a lot of noise when you turned over, but it didn't sleep too bad. Have you used anything less exotic? Not stuffed with anything, but some quilts. I didn't go to the trouble of boiling the, the Spanish moss and stuff with something that no one sees and it probably sleeps a little better too, but it makes a surprisingly good bed. And if you want it a little softer, you ease up on how tight you make the ropes. And if I have extra company, I am actually get my two rope beds out of my trailer to haul my stuff in and bring it in the house and set them up in people's people. <laughs> now, Jerry, you joined the Dade Battlefield Society first and subsequently joined the Seminole Wars Foundation. And you've published books with the Seminole Wars Foundation and you've been a living historian under its tutelage. If we would look back and say, if there had been no Seminole Wars Foundation, what would we be missing? And I think the public would have missed a lot of education about this. Sites would not have been preserved, and there wouldn't be as much publishing about the war. How important is the Seminole Wars Foundation for preserving sites, educating the public, and publishing about the war? It's very important. Without the Seminole Wars Foundation, there's a lot of things that we wouldn't have, like Fort King was one of the things that the Seminole Wars Foundation is one of the first ones to start trying to get that redone and get built. They have big hand in that. The Seminole Wars Foundation has tried to keep it in the forefront with somebody, and 
the little thing that we do in St. Augustine every year is it's beginning to catch on to a lot of people. And a lot of people, when they want to start a foundation, take the Seminole Wars Foundation as a model for theirs. Jerry Morris, thank you so much for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Well, I enjoyed talking about it, but thank you so much for asking me to do this. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.